The following audio is from the Grove Church Snohomish campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. And we're good. Let's go lights. Yeah, you're here. Hey, welcome to the Grove Church. We're so happy that you're here. My name is Andrew. I'm so thrilled that you're checking out our church. If you're a guest with us here today, uh, we want to encourage you, like the video said, there's a Connect card there uh, that you received as you came through the doors. It's just a great opportunity for you to fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable with. And at the end of service, as the offering passes, you can place that in the bin there. Uh, We also have a free gift for you out in the lobby. It's just our way of saying thank you for being here, and we're so thrilled that you're checking out um, our church. So again, thank you so much for being here. We're in a series called... What's your deal? And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Colossians. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today. Obviously, it'll be on the screen as well. I want you to buckle your seatbelts today. I'm pretty fired up and excited about today. And part of the reason why I'm excited about today is because the text that we're going to be reading from is all about Jesus. And it's really, to me, one of the most exciting texts of Scripture that describes who Jesus is to our lives and what he came to do when he came for us. And so I hope you're ready for uh, just an incredible day learning about who Jesus is. Obviously, things get me excited. I'm kind of a simple person. I get excited about the most simplest things, but nothing gets me more excited than talking about Jesus, our Savior and Lord, and who he was. Um, He lived for 30 years as a carpenter in his hometown, He never left home. He never owned his own company. He did not write any books. His ministry only lasted for roughly about three years. Contrary to some odd books out there, he never married. He never had children. He died a horrific death at age 33. He did not have a large church or tons of money. He did not come from an affluent background. He was not educated. He was not what anyone expected him to be. And yet for thousands of years, we divide our time by his birth and his death, BC and AD. He's the most prominent figure in human history. More books and songs have been written about him than any person on the planet. More people pledge their allegiance to King Jesus than any other religion in the world. Our two most important holidays, Christmas and Easter, are recognized by him. Christmas, happy birthday Jesus. Easter, remembering his death, burial, and resurrection. When we come to Good Friday on that dark day, we remember the brokenness and the shame and the sin he took on the cross. That dark Saturday where there was doubt and fear and unknown what what was going to happen to Christ Jesus. And then on that glorious day that we celebrate every single year, Easter, where we celebrate that he's alive, that he defeated death, sin, and the grave. And like I've said to you, I'm fired up about talking about Jesus. Nothing excites me more than talking about Jesus. And he's begging our question to us today. He's beckoning every single one of us today to answer this question. He asked his followers in the first century, and he asks us again in 2018, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? What does Jesus mean to you? Who is he in your life? And what priority will you place him at the center of your life? Who do you say that I am? He's asking us this question. We open this series with this statement. The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus Christ. 
Obviously, where you work, where you live, what you do for education purposes, who you marry, all important decisions, but the most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus Christ. If you were to ask a Jehovah Witness what do they think about Jesus Christ, they would say that Jesus is the Son of God, but that he is not Almighty God, meaning he's not fully God. If you were to ask a Mormon about Jesus, they would say to you that he has good teachings and good morals, but that we should not pray directly to him because Joseph Smith appeared in a vision. Joseph Smith appeared in a vision. Jesus appeared to him and said that the true church, the Mormon church, is the only church and every other church should be non-existent. This is why it's so important for you to understand who Jesus is in your life. Today, we're gonna hear once again from the Apostle Paul, and just to remind you again, Paul, his name used to be Saul, and if you remember his story in the opening series of this message, his story and his life started out in a very, very dark place. First of all, he was a persecutor of the early church. It was called the way. He was wreaking havoc on the early Christians in first century after Christ had returned and had sent his followers. Saul was persecuting the church, murdering Christians, doing whatever he could to stop the way, the early name for Christianity, from ever existing. And Saul, we read in Acts, was at the first martyr, Stephen. We see that he carried his garments as he authorized Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, to be stoned to death. We again read more about Saul and his determination to do everything he could to stop the movement of Christianity until in Acts 9, Jesus appears to him in a vision on the Damascus road and says to him, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting me? It's at that moment that Saul converts to Christianity, later changes his name to Paul, and he begins to plant churches all over Europe, all over Macedonian, all over Asia Minor, in order for people to know Jesus and to understand who he is. And when we read and learn about Paul again today, let's remind ourselves, where is Paul? In the book of Colossians, where is he? He's in prison. He's in prison, and why is he in prison? He's in prison because he is determined and passionate about people knowing Jesus. He's determined to plant churches and tell people about Jesus, and now it's got himself in prison for it. And so we get to hear again from Paul and what he has to say about Jesus. We're gonna be in 1 Colossians chapter one. Let's learn about Jesus today. It says in verse 15 of chapter one, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can't see and the things we can't see and the things we can see, excuse me, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. 
This includes you who were once far away from God, you who were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Let's pray for God's word today. Lord Jesus, we just thank you and praise you, God, that we sit here, we stand here today, God, because of the name of Jesus, Christ, the anointed one. And I pray today, God, that more than anything, people would have a supernatural experience with your Holy Spirit, God, recognizing who Jesus is in their lives. Each one of us has to answer that question today, God. Who do we say I am. Who is Jesus to us? And I thank you, God, that you're going to speak to every heart like you always do through your word. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do so. I'm going to be firing out nine truths about Jesus, nine different truths about Jesus out of this text. And I'm just going to break it down kind of verse by verse in sections. Nine truths about Jesus. Let me read 15 through 17, and we'll start firing out these truths. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and all and he holds all creation together. Truth number one, if you're taking notes here, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Paul is depicting Christ in terms similar to the presentation of wisdom in Proverbs 8. In Proverbs 8, verses 27 and 30, the writer writes this, I was there when he set the heavens in place, When he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. Okay, this speaks, this passage of scripture, Jesus being the image of the invisible God, speaks into what Christianity holds to, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity that Christianity holds to as a belief is that there is one and only one true and living God, That this God, this one God, eternally exists in three persons. Their names are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This doctrine of Trinity describes these three persons that are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature, which each person is fully and completely God, yet the persons are not identical. When Paul is describing Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, he is describing the right of what a firstborn would have been in that day and age, which in a monarch society, a firstborn was given the rights and the authority and the inheritance, and Jesus 
with his blessing of God the Father sending him, he's describing him as this firstborn of creation who will inherently rule and be king over all the earth. Truth number two, in Jesus, all things were created. Truth number two, in Jesus, all things were created. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was the agent of creation through whom God made heaven and earth. We read about this in John with the theology of the Logos. John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. Why is this important? Because some people believe that Jesus didn't exist prior to him coming to earth, yet Paul is reminding us today that before the existence of the world, that at creation, there was a triune God establishing the heavens and the earth. That Jesus has always existed. There was never a time where he did not exist. There was never a time that he was not around. He is fully God and fully man, and he's always been present at creation. Going on here, Paul says, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Paul is using, using Jewish language for ranking purposes. Again, back to week one, there was an issue in Paul's day at the church of Colossae with false teachings. There were people wanting to worship angels as gods. There were people wanting to practice asceticism. It was this belief that you could do more spiritual ritual things in order for God to love you and accept you. Paul is saying that all these thrones, all the kingdoms, all the rulers of this world do not compare in comparison to Christ Jesus. What Paul is reminding of us is ranking. He's saying these angels are not above our Savior and Lord Jesus. They are below him because all things have been created in him. Truth number three, Jesus holds all things together. Paul writes in the section that Christ continually sustains his creation, preventing it from falling into chaos. And Hebrews 1.3 says it beautifully, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus holds all things together. It's kind of like that kid's song, he's got the whole world in his hands. It is that. He holds all things together. It's a reminder for you and I that he's in control of every area of our lives where we want to be afraid, where we want to be worried, where we want to be scared of what's going to happen in our future, what's going to happen to our planet, what's going to happen to our world, or what's going to happen to our kids, what's going to happen to our family. Paul's reminding us that Jesus is holding it all together. He's holding every part of it together. He's the radiance of the glory of God. I'm gonna move on here because I got a lot to get through here. Colossians 1, 18 through 20. Paul writes, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Again, hope you're taking notes. Truth number four, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
He has accomplished reconciliation at the cross. And this metaphor, this being the head of the church, is envisioning Christ being Lord and head of everything happening within his church. Later on in Colossians in chapter 2, we read about a person who was not submitting to Christ as the head of the church. And Paul's reminding this person and the church at Colossae and the churches that he planted and the church for us today that Christ is the head of the church. A practical point for today when we think of Christ as the head of the church. Whenever you meet someone or talk to someone about our church or your church or a church, they always want to know, you know, what do you believe? What, what does your church believe? What, 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 is, what does the church, you know, believe? What, what do they believe about Christ? What do they believe about, you know, the resurrection? What, what does your church believe? What is it, where does it stand on things? Well, I just want to declare to you today that at the Grove Church, we believe that Jesus is head of this church. We submit to Jesus and his name alone. We believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we believe he is Lord and Savior of this church. Not only that, it goes much deeper for me personally. It's actually a church. Our church is not about a pastor or a person. It's not about a stage or a song. It's not about being famous or having a bunch of followers. It's not about everyone knowing your name. It's not about popularity. It's not about likes and comments. It's nothing about those things. What it's about, why we're here, why we gather, is to preach and teach and worship the name of Jesus. And it's always gonna be about Jesus. I told you to buckle your seatbelts. I've had my coffee, I've lost my mind, and I'm really excited today. It's about Jesus. It's always gonna be about Jesus. It's always gonna be about his kingdom existing and him saving people. And anytime you meet a church or leadership and you think somehow, man, that church is more about a person or a team or it's more about their building or more about this, that's a problem. Because in this church, at the Grove Church, it will always be about King Jesus. Always. And he's the head of it. And we worship him. And he's the Lord of it. And you thought I was loud until today, and now you think I'm crazy, and I am. I'm a crazy person. I'm sweating, and I'm excited, because I love Jesus. I love him, and I want you to as well. This is the most powerful scripture about Jesus, and I've been thinking about it all week. We'll move on. Truth number five, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of the new creation. His resurrection is an anticipation and a guarantee if you put your faith in Christ that this life will end, but life with him will continue forever. And the reason we get that hope, we talked about last week, the reason why Christians walk in this virtue of hope, the reason why we get excited when someone, you know, someone that we love, it's, it's mourning, it's sad when they pass away, but when they're a Christ follower, there's that spirit of rejoicing and that excitement because we know they've passed from death to life. There, there's a joy, there's a hope that we have in Christ because of eternity and Jesus being the firstborn of creation, being the firstborn of the dead, through his resurrection, conquered death, sin, and the grave. 
Truth number six here from this section. Jesus is the exalted Lord, is the exalted Lord, excuse me, of life and glory. Jesus is the exalted Lord of life and glory. This points to the Old Testament where God's glory would dwell in the temple or would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant. What would happen is God's presence would fill the temple. People would go to the temple for worship. They would go to honor God with their lives at the temple. Ezekiel 44 says, I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When when, when Paul writes about Jesus being the exalted Lord of life and glory, Jesus now possesses not just God's glory, he possesses the wisdom, power, spirit, and glory of God. To say that God and all his fullness dwelled in Christ is to say that Jesus was fully God. What, What Paul is wanting you and I to understand is God now, through the work of Jesus on the cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection, Christ now, within himself, has all the glory of God. He's the exalted Lord. There's no longer a a need for temple worship. There's no longer a need for that kind of life because of what Christ has done. Truth number seven from this passage of scripture. Jesus is the object of the believer's faith. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He has made peace with God through his death on the cross. This means believers are no longer enemies of God, but we are called his friends through the work of the cross and the power of his resurrection. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one meteor between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. He is the object of our worship and faith. He's the one we look to for all things. He's the one that we sing about today. He's the one that deserves our praise. He is the object of our faith because of what he's done on the cross. Let's move on to this last section here. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Truth number eight here. Jesus is the triumphed victor over sin and Satan. See, because of what Christ did on the cross, we were once alienated from God because of sin. Because of what Christ did on the cross, he became the triumphant victor over sin and Satan. It's the theology of now that we were once lost, we are now found. It's the theology of those who have said yes to Christ are no longer enemies of God, we become friends of God. It's the theology and the belief that because of what Christ has done through the resurrection, through the cross, we can now stand before God as sons and daughters of the Most High God. It's an identity thing. Because of what Christ has done for you and I on the cross, because of what he did through the resurrection, 
we are sons and daughters of God. We have privilege as sons and daughters. We can talk to God the Father. We can hear his spirit speaking to us through his word. Because of this victory over sin and Satan, we can no longer be enemies, no longer be afraid, no longer be worried. We can trust in God our Savior and we can be righteous and blameless before God. This passage here echoes the Old Testament and what the Levitical priests would do on the Day of Atonement. They would have to make right with God the sins of the people of Israel. And so the priests would go before, on the Day of Atonement, they would go into the temple and they would sacrifice an unblemished animal without spot or wrinkle, an unblemished animal. They would shed that animal's blood and that blood would atone for the sins of the people. What Jesus is saying through Paul now, what God is saying is that Jesus is that final sacrifice. We no longer need to go to a temple. We no longer need to go to a priest. We no longer need to go to a pastor to be free from our sin. We have now access to God to the Father as our mediator and high priest, and we can go directly to God, and he can hear our prayers and forgive us. It's a reminder for you and I that that old system, that old covenant, that old law is no longer needed anymore because of Jesus. Truth number nine here, our final one. Jesus is the unifier and reconciler of all things. Because of his blood, because of him being the final sacrifice, he has reconciled you and I to him He's, we're now friends of God. He can no longer, we, no, we no longer stand in God's presence with shame or doubt. We can trust in God as our Father because of what Christ has done and unifying us to God and reconciling us of all things. Nine truths about Jesus. Let me, let me give you some practical things today, and I want to read a, an article to you. Just three thoughts here. Number one, who do you say I am? Luke 9, 18 through 20. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, this is Jesus speaking, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others. That's one of the prophets that have, of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God, the anointed one of God. You have to come to a place in your life of who Jesus is to you. You have to answer that question today. Who is Jesus in your life? Not, not what your parents believe about Jesus, not what your friends told you about Jesus, not what you heard on the radio or saw in a movie, but who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the Lord and savior of your life? Has he taken root of every area of your life? Or for many people, is he just a good teacher? Oh, he just said some nice things. Oh, he did some good works. He had some good morals. He helped heal people. Who do you say Jesus is? Number two, following Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. I wanna to read to you a, an article today about a man by the name of Eugene Peterson. 
And maybe a lot of you don't know that name. You're like, I don't even know who that is. I'm gonna give you a little context. Eugene Peterson was a godly man who passed away this week at 85 years old. He's the man that translated the Bible that we know today as the message. I've talked a little bit about the message Bible before. It's an incredible Bible for devotional use. I read through it a lot. If you're just wondering how prominent this person was, that Bible, the message, has sold and continues to sell over 17 million copies worldwide. He's a man that has done amazing things for the kingdom of God, one being translating the entire Bible that we can read today, the message version, two being writing over 40 books to help pastors and leaders and Christ followers, and he's led a really remarkable life. But I wanna read to you this article about his life from a friend. It came out this week at his passing. It says, this week marked Eugene Peterson's 85th birthday. So I thought this would be a great occasion to share a little of what friendship with Eugene and Jan Peterson has meant to me over the years. At the end of August, I went to spend two days with them at their home. Though I've met up with him a few times at retreat centers across the country, this was my fifth visit to their home in Montana. Every time I had gone to their house before this trip, they were in a position to receive me with some semblance of strength. On my first visit, Eugene was a vibrant 77-year-old who had just finished writing Practice Resurrection, a conversation on growing up in Christ. That was the fifth manuscript he had written in five years. His mind was energized and energizing to me. He would rattle off exact quotations from Kierkegaard and Von Balster and Torrance and Von Hugel. To be with him was to be invigorated. I remember all those flights into the modest little airport in northern Montana. I would find myself looking out the window like a giddy seven-year-old boy on his first trip to Disney. I can't believe I get to be here. But the trip in August was different. Instead of that giddy feeling of going to visit a legend in the faith, a literary icon whose 40-plus books I have devoured, I felt the sober seriousness that one feels when he gets to visit an aging grandparent. It was one of those trips you take because you don't know how many more of these you'll get. I showed up at their place that afternoon and they were sitting in the front room. Jan, with that perfect, gentle voice of hers, was reading Eugene one of their favorite novels. The front windows were slightly opened and I could hear her voice as I walked down the steps to their front door. We spent the afternoon together catching up and doing small jobs around the house. I noticed a few light bulbs were out, so I changed them. I took out the compost while Jan picked some basil from, the, from her herb garden. We made dinner, the stuff of life. After breakfast on the second morning, Eugene retreated for a couple minutes and came back out wearing his swim trunks. He threw me an extra pair and said he wanted to go for a morning swim at Flathead Lake. We walked out the back door and down to the dock, I walking beside him the whole time as we took the steep decline, instinctively holding his slender arm, ready to catch him in case the dirt slid out from beneath him. I did not ask for permission to hold his arm, but wondered if I should have. Earlier in life, Eugene was a fantastic athlete. Having ran over 20 marathons, was my taking of his arm just another one of those thousand reminders that life for him is changing? That strength is waning. But almost right away, 
I could sense his gratitude at the, guest, at the gesture, and I knew we were okay. We got to the dock, threw our towels down, and Eugene shuffled over to the edge of the dock, his toes hanging over the side. In that moment, everything stopped, and my imagination flashed back 70 years to Eugene as a teenager diving into this water, his father standing behind him and bellowing out that laugh that can only come from a proud dad. Eugene grew up swimming the flathead. This is his family's place. In fact, his teenage years were spent helping his dad build the little cabin that he and Jan live in today. He rocked back and forth a couple times, measuring what the jump would require, leaned over and dove in. We spent the day walking, looking through his library, praying, kayaking, and talking. 12 hours of talking. I've always loved spending time with people in their 80s and 90s because I know they are a treasury of experience. So I came ready with questions. I asked Eugene about a lot of things, but I stumbled onto something I wanted to know. I wanted to know what he had learned about money. To give a little context, this is a guy who translated a Bible that has sold over 17 million copies. I was interested to know what that has taught a guy who grew up in a modest home during the Great Depression, in a hardworking small town community who himself lived paycheck to paycheck for most of his working years. Eugene was totally silent for about 60 seconds. He was rubbing his fingers through his gray beard and staring off into the distance across the lake where the Rocky Mountains are in view. Through so many of these moments with Eugene over the years, I have learned to wait through the long pauses. It seemed like he had gathered a thought. I don't think I've learned anything about money, he said. And then he went silent again. I waited, but I was thinking, what do you mean? You haven't learned anything about money. Then it hit me. This is the guy who lives in his childhood home. They have one car, a Honda. There is not an ostentatious bone in their bodies. They are people who have turned down opportunity after opportunity in order to preserve a life of simplicity and quiet faithfulness. A long obedience in the same direction. I have long said that it took, it only took Eugene Peterson 65 years to become an overnight success. And the success came when he had gotten over his need to be successful. God must have known he could trust this odd couple with that kind of money, that kind of acclaim. What I discovered is that Eugene and Jan have been doing this their entire lives, been giving themselves away, their strength away, their money away. I basically made him admit that he and Jan have paid for scores of his students to, pr to pursue master's or doctrinal degrees full scholarships out of their own pockets. We've determined that's the way God, that's why God gave us this money. That's what it's for, he said. They have given a local and global mission work. As the psalmist says, they have freely scattered abroad their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. Eugene and Jan could have gone the traditional retirement route that is the last stretch on the highway to the American dream, and no one would have blamed them. They could have circled the wagons and shut everyone else out. They could have spent that money on themselves, but they haven't. At the end of our second day together, I asked if I could pray for Eugene and Jan, but I took it a step further, asking if I could anoint their heads with oil. There's an unmistakable significance to oil throughout Scripture. It's the way people were set apart as holy unto the Lord. And it signifies the oil of gladness for which every human being is longing. 
This felt like a big thing to ask, a younger person asking to anoint a sage. They were emotional as they said, yes, of course. I could anoint them with oil. Father, let them feel it deep down in their bones, that well done, good and faithful servant. It was a moment I will never forget. Wrapping it up here. Then Eugene got up and went to the other room. He came back in carrying his own bottle of anointing oil. He cracked that thing open, the room immediately feeling with that unmistakable smell of frankincense. He anointed me with oil and he and Jan prayed for me. He prayed so many wonderful things, but as he prayed, this line stood out to me. Father, help Jan and I to take what's left with us and share it with those around us. Help us give it all away. Of all that I've learned from Eugene and Jan Peterson over the years, maybe that's the thing that will stick with me the most, that true life is found as we become like Jesus, as we spend our lives giving it all away. That's what it means to be a Christ follower for you and I today. It's a long obedience following Christ, a long obedience in the same direction. I'm going to have the worship team make their way forward here as we end the service today. Following Christ is this long obedience in the same direction. And what we learn from Eugene and Jan and what we learn from so many others who have been following Christ for so many years is they've recognized and realized that the greatest thing we can do in life as Christ followers is to give our lives away. It's to model what Christ did when he gave his life away. The last thing that I think applies to this message, and we do it every single Sunday, we do it every day we wake up, that Jesus deserves our highest praise and adoration. He he deserves our, our highest praise and adoration. Jesus is not just a prophet or a teacher. He's not just a moral stand. He's not just a cute baby in a manger. He is fully God and fully man. He's the alpha and the Omega, he's the beginning and the end. He's the everlasting father. He's the great high priest. He's the suffering servant and he deserves our highest praise and adoration and he continues to save people and he continues to heal people and he continues to draw people through his church. It's the most beautiful thing to know that we serve a savior like this. Why don't you bow your heads with me here today? The Bible tells us that Jesus will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Bible tells us in Colossians that we read today that Jesus is head of the church. He is the Lord and Savior. He is the great high priest. He is the one, as we sang today, that leaves the 99 to go after the one. And he offers you and I the gift of salvation. He says in Matthew 11, come to me who all, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take all the pain, the yoke, the burdens. Take my yoke and learn from me. He's come to be our mediator. He's come to be our savior. He's come to be our Lord and King. And I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to Christ today. Bible says, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus died and rose again, we shall be saved. 
And if you're here today and you say, you know, I hear these nine truths about Jesus. I hear who he was. I hear what he was about. And I want to know Jesus. I want him to be my savior and Lord. I want to answer that question. Who do I say I am? I want him to be my Lord and savior. That's my answer today. You want to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. I'm just going to ask you to just lift up your hand right here in this place. You want to put your faith in Jesus today. One right here. Thanks so much. Someone else. Two. Thanks so much. Awesome. I appreciate that honesty. You can put your hands down. Anyone else? The two. Three. Thank you so much. I see your hand. Three. Anyone else? You want to put your faith in Jesus today with the three hands that raised their hand. Offered to every single person the gift of salvation with these three hands. Four, five, thank you guys, I appreciate it. Awesome. Five hands. Anyone else with the five hands? You wanna put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Lord and Savior, King loves you so much. Six, thanks so much, my friend. Anyone else with these six hands? You wanna put your faith in Jesus today. The Savior of the world died for your sins with these six hands. Awesome. If you're a Christ follower, I want you to pray this prayer with me. If you raise your hand, I want you to pray this prayer with me. I just want you to say, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the devil and I accept salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give it up for those six people that raised their hand? Absolutely. Here, here's what's so amazing with those six hands. Man, if you were one of those individuals, first of all, I wanna congratulate you. Best decision you'd ever make in your life. And I'm so proud that you took it. Absolutely, absolutely. If you were one of those people on that connect card, it just says on there, I'm accepting Christ. I, I want you to fill that out. I want you to mark that box. I also, I just wanna talk with you for about five minutes after service. I wanna tell you about some great steps you can take in your walk with Christ, because I wanna encourage you, walking with Christ is done with others. I wanna encourage you what that looks like here at the Grove Church. And so if that was you, I'll be in the lobby. I'm loud, you'll find me. I'd love to talk to you and tell you all about what you can do to follow Jesus even more. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Snohomish Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.